Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China has a very serious image problem when it comes to the treatment of members of the Uyghur ethnic group in the western province of Xinjiang. Internet searches on the topic throw up phrases such as genocide and forced labor. Some researchers estimate that since 2016, more than a million people have been detained there without trial. But while China's critics accuse it of crimes against humanity, the official line is very different. You have misunderstood us, say the Chinese. Peace and stability has returned to this restive area, once plagued by terrorism. Education is not a punishment, but a gift. We're creating a region where people of all ethnicities are patriots and can flourish. So what are we to make of these conflicting interpretations? How should they shape our thinking about China? I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast this week an expert who's done a great deal of writing and research on this important issue. Michael Clark is the editor of a recent book called The Xinjiang Emergency. Among many other roles, Dr. Clark is a visiting fellow at the Australia-China Relations Institute. And he joins me on the line today from Sydney. Michael, welcome to China in Context. Thanks, Duncan, uh, for the chance to, to speak to you about this topic. Let me start with this question. What leads people to be detained in a camp in Xinjiang? Are they literally snatched off the street or are they subject to some form of legal process? There are many things um, that can lead a person to be detained and uh, sent to re-education. But the main thing is that it concerns outward signs or behaviours that the Chinese Communist Party deems to be signs of quote-unquote extremist thinking. So, for instance, the uh, regional governments also specify a wide range of expressions or signs of extremism, ranging from wearing Islamic face coverings uh, to growing so-called irregular beards, right through to having uh, travel overseas or having relatives that live overseas. So individuals can be targeted either through intervention by local officials or police that have been monitoring local communities, or perhaps more, more significantly, uh, through the technologically enabled surveillance system uh, that has been erected in Xinjiang. Uh, cameras, Wi-Fi, uh, sniffers, license plate cameras, etc., that have been installed throughout the region. So this flags particular behaviours and flags individuals for further investigation due to suspicious behaviours. So in terms of legal process, however, many are then detained and sent to administrative detention where they're then filtered out to different forms of re-education centre or re-education camps. And the majority of these take place outside China's regular legal system. So just to be clear, these camps were initially established in response to a wave of terrorist attacks against Chinese targets carried out by Uyghurs, weren't they? That's broadly correct. So between 2009 and 2014, there were a number of significant terrorist attacks or incidents in or connected to Xinjiang. So, for instance, the uh, March 2014 Kunming uh, railway station attack uh, in Yunnan province. It is clear that these events, these attacks, really form the crucial backdrop uh, to some of the high-level decision-making. And in particular, Xi Jinping's uh, decision-making in the latter part of 2014 to move towards uh, uh, the implementation of not only what has become known or referred to as the system of re-education, but also some of the surveillance apparatus. It's important to also note 
that the Chinese Communist Party has exaggerated the extent of the challenge posed by what they refer to as an organised Uyghur militancy, uh, when in fact Uyghur militancy has, has, has really had very disparate links, certainly to radicalism beyond uh, China's borders. Okay, so there are various ways of talking about these camps. What words do you think describe them most accurately? We can begin here by talking about how the Chinese government themselves refer to these uh, facilities, because I think it's quite revealing, actually. So the Chinese government refers to them as vocational training and internment centres. The notion of internment, of course, suggests uh, that individuals that are placed within them are certainly not there voluntarily, while the notion of vocational quote-unquote training, uh, is also indicative, I think, of what the Chinese Communist Party believes uh, that it is achieving here. And that is that it's providing education and training to a population that it believes is susceptible uh, to extremism. And so I would classify the camps run in Xinjiang as belonging to a sort of tradition of concentration camps or indeed forms of enclosure um, that have been utilised by colonial states against Indigenous peoples uh, throughout certainly modern history. China says, and I think you, you mentioned this when you were explaining the words used by the state, these camps are needed to educate people who've been brainwashed. That's a word that appears in your book. And you also make the point that Xi Jinping's view is that they've been very successful in that regard. What's your perspective? As far as Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party more broadly is concerned, re-education coupled with uh, the surveillance apparatus is deemed to have been a, a success, indeed a roaring success in some ways. Uh, in fact, Xi stated at the last Xinjiang Work Forum that the party's approach had been comp a complete success and the party's line was in fact 100% correct. Now, whether in fact that is the case, of course, is, is open to some uh, considerable question and debate. Yet I think what's important is that we can say with a fairly high degree of certainty that the party itself believes that mastery education and surveillance uh, has not only ensured security and prevented terrorist attacks in Xinjiang, it has also uh, enabled the removing of Uyghurs and also other uh, Turkic uh, Muslim minorities from their own cultural uh, milieu and place them into Han Chinese dominated and policed environments. So this sort of leads us to the, the connection with, I suppose, the so-called civilizing aspect as far as the party is concerned about the re-education process. So for the party, there is something intrinsic uh, about Uyghur cultural practices, norms, identity that makes them susceptible to extremism. And so re-education is a way in which the party can address this particular issue. Now, to call these places concentration camps is a very loaded phrase. It immediately evokes horrific memories of the Second World War, where Jews were imprisoned before being put to death in gas chambers in places like Auschwitz. Are there any mass executions taking place in China? No, we have no evidence of, of mass atrocity uh, crimes in Xinjiang. And, and certainly to my knowledge, I don't think any credible scholar or researcher um, of Xinjiang or the Uyghur has in fact made that claim. However, I think it's important, um, certainly in our book, uh, we, we sort of reach an emerging consensus, I think, about the nature of the re-education system itself. And also perhaps more importantly, what we think its purpose is. With respect to the former eye, the nature of the system, 
as I've mentioned, there are clear parallels with previous uh, examples of concentration camps, whether they be Native American reservations, the Stalinist Gulag, or even uh, China's own reform through labor camps, particularly during the Maoist era. Importantly, in terms of the purpose, it's very clear that the system is not about mass extermination of a targeted population, but rather about a systematic undertaking to tear down and then in some ways remake Uyghur identity uh, so as to produce a compliant and productive population. So the goal here isn't physical destruction, but cultural destruction. So cultural destruction then, does that have a link to another emotive term which is applied to this region of China, which is genocide? What's your view of using the word genocide in terms of this situation? My view on this particular question, and I think it's something that I've foreshadowed a little bit with my answer to, to the previous question, is that genocide, certainly at least in its sort of popular connotation or understanding, which invo evokes images uh, of, of, of Auschwitz uh, and the Jewish Holocaust, is not appropriate to the current situation. And I've argued elsewhere that the concept rather of cultural genocide is in fact more accurate as it's clear that the Chinese state is not set upon physical eradication of the Uyghur population, but rather the erasure of its culture, language, religions, custom, which it sees as the root of both extremism and also importantly, it sees as the root of what it terms underdevelopment. So there's sort of two elements at play here as far as the party is concerned. There is something, again, intrinsic about Uyghur identity that makes Xinjiang prone to uh, extremism and, and, and terrorist violence, but also to long-standing socioeconomic under, underdevelopment. And so re-education is a, is a pathway through which the party believes it can address those particular problems. I would stress that simply because I frame this as cultural genocide doesn't make this any less of, a, of an outrage in some ways. In some ways, it's in fact more insidious as the ultimate endpoint, certainly of these policies, if left unchecked, may in fact be the same in the long term uh, as mass extermination, in the sense that it could have the effect of the disappearance of an autonomous and intergenerationally transmitted Uyghur culture. And I can hear in the word underdevelopment, this idea that, I, that I've picked up from people in China, that this Western region was underdeveloped, it needed investment. And so now it's getting more attention from the Chinese government. When I meet Han Chinese people who visit uh, this part of China, they say it's very peaceful. They say there's growing prosperity. I assume that they're being encouraged to give me a rosy interpretation of what's going on there. Yes, I mean, I think this is not only too rosy a view, it fundamentally misunderstands or perhaps even ignores um, the political realities uh, that underlie China's uh, strategy of development and modernization in Xinjiang. On the one hand, yes, there has been uh, observable uh, and significant economic development and modernization, um, but it has been unequally shared. It's resulted in increased rural and urban disparities in various parts of Xinjiang, and that's important as a majority of the Uyghur population, certainly in the south of the region, are predominantly rurally based. Uh, it's damaged the region's uh, environment, and it's also transformed the social and demographic face of the region through the encouragement of Han Chinese settlement over a number, number of decades. I think, moreover, the sort of broader point here in terms of thinking about the significance of this claim about economic growth and development is that it fundamentally misunderstands the purpose of the state. 
in undertaking that development and modernization. The entire purpose of it is to ensure that the region writ large, its people, its resources, its territory is tightly integrated with the rest of China. So they can contribute in, of course, the, the, the phraseology of, of the current leadership. So it can contribute to the great national re rejuvenation of the Chinese state. And I want to talk about something outside the camp. So I want to talk about cotton. Michael, I've read in several places that Uyghur prisoners are being used as forced labour to pick cotton, which is then made into T-shirts and socks, which goes on sale around the world. We hear a lot about this nowadays. What can you say about these slave labour allegations? Are they true? Yes, um, they are. There is certainly a basis for, for these allegations. And, and this is due to the fact that we have been able to track the ways in which individuals who have been released from re-education have then been pushed towards new forms of control and surveillance. And one of these has to be effectively be a form of forced labour for a variety of, of industries in Xinjiang, but also elsewhere in China. So there's been not only the usage of detainees within the textile industry in Xinjiang, but also the transfer of large numbers of, of Uyghurs who have been released from various forms of detention uh, transferred to other industrial uh, facilities uh, throughout the rest of China. I want to draw our conversation to a close in a moment, but I wanted to say before we finish that clearly the Xinjiang situation has become something of an international cause celebre. There have been many heated debates about this among politicians in Washington, here in London, and I'm sure in Australia too. And when the Olympic Games was taking place in Beijing recently, I read a lot about the diplomatic boycotts. How does all this attention affect the lives of the people in Xinjiang? Are they aware of it? Yeah, this is a, a difficult question to answer in some ways. Certainly the Chinese public in a broad sense is aware of the controversy surrounding China's policies in Xinjiang. And this is because the party has been, in fact, very active in actively proselytizing uh, its policies in Xinjiang as, as a positive good, certainly within China, but also increasingly towards foreign audiences. In terms of how sanctions and so on have affected people on the ground, we do not, in fact, have a good insight in, into this particular issue. It's hard to gauge the effect of sanctions such as those put in place by the Biden administration, simply because, uh, in fact, this has only taken place very recently. Well, that sounds as though it creates more opportunities for research by you and your team. Michael, thank you very much for your deep insight into this topic. Um, it's a highly emotive issue. Uh, but you've approached it with a lot of academic rigour. That was Dr. Michael Clark on the line there from Sydney. He's the editor of a book called The Xinjiang Emergency, published by Manchester University Press. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and there are more details about our courses and events on our web pages, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. <laughs>